If you'll take your Bibles again, this, I keep going to say this morning, but it's an afternoon service. Uh, we're looking at verse 29, and it's where John the Baptist makes this glorious declaration of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, John the Baptist had a very understated ministry in some ways. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now, whenever we think of the prophets and we maybe think of our favorite Old Testament prophet, we might be swayed towards Moses or, or Samuel or maybe Elijah or maybe Jeremiah or somebody like that. But and we might be tempted to say he was the greatest Old Testament prophet. But whenever the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of John the Baptist, this is what he declared in Luke 7:28. He says, I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. So the Lord Jesus Christ really settled the matter as to who the greatest Old Testament prophet was. He says, John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Now, boys and girls here may be thinking, how can John the Baptist be an Old Testament prophet whenever we read of him in the New Testament? Well, the Old Testament period really continued until the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that whole period throughout the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ really falls under the time frame that we call the Old Testament. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ, he continued the Old Testament practices of, of sacrifices and the feasts. He kept all those because they were part of the Old Testament. So John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. But what was John's specific role? What did God want John the Baptist to do? Well, John was to be the prophet who came immediately before the Lord Jesus Christ to announce his coming. Just like in the olden times, whenever the king was coming into a place, there would be a herald who would go before to announce the coming of the king into that village or town or city. So John the Baptist was the herald. He was the announcer of the Lord Jesus Christ. John's ministry was focused solely upon Jesus. In verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I speak. He says, This is the one that I've been preaching for all these years. This is the one that I've been announcing to you. You have traveled in your droves to come and hear me, not speak about myself, but to speak about him. So all the sermons that I've preached have, pre have been about him. And now he is here. The John the Baptist had a Christ-centered and Christ-focused ministry. He sought to elevate Christ before the people. Verse 15, he says, He that cometh after me is preferred before me. He says, although he's coming after me, he's before me. He's far more important than I am, for he was before me. Verse 27 he says, he it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latched I am not worthy to unloose. He says, I am not worthy even to untie his shoelaces, to undo the buckle on his shoes, because he is so much greater than I am. So John didn't take any glory for himself, 
John didn't want the praise of men. He didn't want the preeminent position. He wanted it all to go to Christ. What a preacher John was. And the remarkable thing about John's ministry is that people flocked to hear him. Now, John didn't have a big massive stage. He didn't have a great big amphitheater. He, he didn't have any allurements or attractions of the world to draw people in. There wasn't a raffle where people would win a car or a holiday. All John did was preach Christ. And remarkably, people came. They came to hear the message of John. He preached in power and people responded. God, the Holy Spirit, moved people to come and hear John. But then something happened. People made a mistake about John the Baptist. They mistook him for being the Messiah. They thought he himself was the promised saviour. But in verse 23, John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. So John tells people he's only here to prepare the way for the coming saviour. Don't focus upon me. Focus upon Christ. That was his ministry. Then one day, it was the highlight of John's ministry. It was the highlight of John's ministry, but in many ways it was also the end of John's ministry. Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ began his earthly ministry, John the Baptist had the great joy of announcing this to the world. And he announced him, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. That was the beginning of Christ's ministry. And it was the end of John's ministry. This was the purpose that God had him on this earth to do. To prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. And now that he's done that, John's ministry is drawing to a close. He has fulfilled the purpose that God had him to do. But what titles did John pick? I'm sure that John maybe thought of this down through the years. How will I announce the coming of the Savior? There was a preacher who was asked to speak at a, a conference of, um, uh, at a Christian conference. And there were all these uh, preachers who were gathered for this conference. He was given a 30-minute time slot. And he got up. And in, and in that 30 minutes, he started reading all the names of the Lord Jesus Christ that are found in the New Testament alone. And that filled the whole 30 minutes. He didn't even have time to do the Old Testament. There's so many names that are given to Christ in the Bible. John could have announced him, Behold the King of glory. Behold the Lord of lords and King of kings. Behold Emmanuel. Behold the Lion of Judah. But he didn't use any of those titles. He used another title. He didn't call him the Lion. He called him the Lamb. He gives him a humble title in many ways. He calls him the Lamb of God because this title sums up the whole ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole reason for his coming into this world. He's not the king coming to take his kingdom by force. He is the lamb who has come to lay down his life, that ransom for many. So I want us to think this morning upon this title given to Christ, the lamb of God. Four headings to leave with you. First of all, Let's notice the picture of the Lamb. The picture of the Lamb. What did John mean in calling Christ the Lamb of God? Well, he's using a common word that we will be able to understand. We know what a Lamb is. 
But there's a bigger picture here. There's the whole picture of the lamb that is found in the Old Testament. Now, some scholars have tried to say that John was wrong to use such a title. He should have used a, a bigger title. Uh, some have tried to say, well, the sacrifice of bulls and goats was more significant than the lambs. But in Exodus 29, verse 38, it says there, Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day continually. So the offering of the lamb was not a strange picture to the Jewish people. It's something they would have been familiar with. The boys and girls as they were growing up would have been familiar with the sight of those lambs being offered day and night before God. The good, the good lambs, the, the perfect lambs without blemish were brought and they were sacrificed. So this is a picture in the minds of the Jewish people that they would have been very familiar with. But we also see lots of references to the lamb in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Genesis 22. And here we see, and not the earliest reference, I believe, but one of the, uh, the most significant references to that of the Lamb. Genesis 22 and the verse 2. This is where God says to Abraham, Take now thy son Isaac, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mounts that I will tell thee of. So God has commanded Abraham to go and to take Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice. Verse 7, we see that Isaac is familiar with the ritual of offering lambs as a sacrifice. Uh, Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So as Isaac and Jacob, or Abraham and Isaac, sorry, are walking up the mount. Isaac is very concerned. We don't have a lamb to sacrifice to God. God will not accept our offering if we do not present a lamb. Of course, Abraham says in verse 8, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. They both went together. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. So it should have been Isaac put upon the altar. But God intervened and he told Abraham, don't sacrifice Isaac. There's a lamb in Isaac's place. So there was a substitute for Isaac. In Exodus chapter 12, it's the story of the Passover. Be very familiar with you, boys and girls. I'm sure you learn it in Sunday school. That whenever God sent the plague, the death of the firstborn, the children of Israel were told to take that lamb, to, uh, to slay it, to take the blood of that lamb, and to put it upon the doorposts of the house. Exodus 12, verse 3. In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Now, some of those children were probably maybe a bit upset. They maybe had a favorite lamb and their daddy would take that lamb and he would kill it. And then he would take the blood upon the doorpost and the children maybe didn't understand why has daddy done that with my pet lamb. Uh, I loved that lamb. I played with that lamb every day. But once they grew up and they learned the importance of why that lamb had been slain and how the blood had been put over the doorpost to save their life, they would appreciate the death of that lamb. And then if we turn to Isaiah 53, we see some very significant prophecy concerning the Lamb. Isaiah 53 verse 7, 
This speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. And then in verse 10 it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So here we see Isaiah prophesying that there would be uh, the Savior Messiah who would be like a lamb. He would be offered as a sacrifice. So whenever John the Baptist declares here that, there's go, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, he's using all the references that are found in the Old Testament. It should have been Isaac sacrificed, but the Lamb was a substitute for Isaac. And the Lord Jesus Christ would be a substitute for his people. It should be us facing the wrath of God for our sin. It should be us facing God's anger for sin. But instead, God has provided a substitute for us. Just like he did for Isaac. Uh, we can see in the Passover. Uh, how death should have come upon the firstborn. But because of the sacrifice of the lamb. That firstborn was spared. And again it should be us facing death. For our crimes against God. But God has provided a lamb in our place. Who has shed his blood. So we need not taste of death. And then in Isaiah we have the prophecy that there would be one brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And that's what happened Christ at the cross of Calvary. He was brought as the lamb of God. And he was put to death on the altar of Calvary. Fulfilling this prophecy. So we see here first of all the picture of the lamb. Secondly let's notice the preeminence of the lamb. John describes the Lord Jesus Christ not just as a lamb, but he describes him as the lamb of God. Now there is something special about this lamb that John is talking about here. It's not, the la it's not the lamb of a farmer, although lamb and sheep are important to farmers. They're there for their income. This is not the lamb of a king. This doesn't belong to some earthly king. It's not the lamb of a little child. John describes who this lamb belongs to. This is the lamb of God. This is God's lamb that he has sent into this world to be sacrificed on an altar. Now the Jewish people could well recall all the times that they had brought their own animals for sacrifice. Whether it be the, the heifer, whether it be the turtle dove, whether it be the lamb. They could remember the times they queued up and brought those lambs for sacrifice. Uh, perhaps what it cost them. Maybe, maybe that animal that they had was worth an awful lot of money. But they were commanded by God to do it. And they can maybe remember the great cost it was to them. Well here they're told that this is God's lamb that he has provided. And this lamb is precious to God. This lamb is God's only begotten son. John 3.16 tells us. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. God gave his son. To be the lamb. Now in the Old Testament. We read that whenever you were bringing a lamb. For the sacrifice. You weren't to bring the lamb that was sick. You weren't to bring the lamb that was half dead. You were to bring your best. You were to bring a spotless lamb, without a blemish, without a wound, without an infection, without a broken leg. You were to bring your very best in sacrifice to God. 
Well, here God has given us his son, a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, to be our saviour. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, Peter says, For ye know, uh, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, boys and girls, the Lord Jesus Christ was perfect. Do you know he was the perfect child? He never disobeyed his mummy and daddy. He never told a lie. He never took anything that didn't belong to him. He was perfect. And he had to be perfect. Because he was living the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then he was going to die the death that we deserve to die. So he is the perfect Lamb of God. But why did God give us his Son? Why did God send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our saviour? Why didn't he just put all of our sin upon an earthly lamb? Why didn't he put all of our sin even upon an angel? Well, there was no other way for us to be saved. No other way for our sin to be dealt with than God taking our sin upon himself. Sadly, today the world takes no notice of this event. They care little about the day that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, the day that he commenced his ministry, or the day that he died, or the day that he rose again. They care little. But I believe this was a, a monumental day. Whenever God came into the world and Christ commenced his ministry, I believe the angels in heaven probably gazed on in wonder and amazement that here is God, and he's doing this wonderful thing for those wicked, sinful men and women, he's becoming the lamb that is going to take away their sin. What a mercy that is. So whenever you're maybe tempted to think, God doesn't care about me. God has no interest in me. God has no interest in this world at all. Dear friend, remember that he sent his son to be a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, to die in the place of sinners. Well, as John commenced his ministry, he made much of Christ, the preeminence of the Lamb. Thirdly, let's notice the power of the Lamb. Verse 29, John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What power this Lamb has. No earthly Lamb has that power. No earthly Lamb can take away your sin. You can't take away your own sin either. We thought earlier of what it is to wash ourselves. We can wash dirt off ourselves, but we cannot wash one single sin from ourselves. We cannot make an atonement for our sins by ourselves. Many people think that as long as their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, that God will be happy, that God will be pleased with them. As long as they do more good than they do bad, that they'll get into heaven. But dear friend, the Bible teaches us no such thing. Think, boys and girls, how many sins did Adam commit in the garden? It was one, one, one act of disobedience, and God put him out of the garden. So will God let us into heaven with our thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of sins? Of course not. Our sin needs to be dealt with. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ came to do. He came to take away sin. Uh, whenever Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said, He who knew no sin... <coughs> was made sin for us. Now that is an awfully precious thought. He who knew no sin, 
Christ knew no sin. He never committed any sin. He never did any sin. But he was made sin for us. He took all of our sin upon himself. And he didn't just take our sin. He took the guilt of our sin. Because before God we stand as guilty sinners. Christ took the guilt of that sin. So that we can stand before God innocent and redeemed. Because he has paid the penalty for our sin. Now boys and girls. You might get in trouble in this life. and Maybe your mummy and daddy can help you. You might... Um, Whenever you're old enough to drive, you might get caught speeding and the, uh, the police might fine you 200 pounds. I'm guessing that's how much it is. I have no idea how much a speeding fine is. You might be fined 200 pounds and you might not have the money to pay it. Well, your mummy and daddy might very generously pay that speeding fine for you so that you don't have to go to jail. But whenever it comes before God, it doesn't matter how much your mommy and daddy try. They cannot wash away your sin. They cannot take your sin away from you. They cannot even take your sin to themselves. All of us have sinned against God. And there's not a single thing we can do or our parents can do to take our sin away. There's only one person who can take away our sin. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the power to take away not only the guilt of sin... But the punishment of sin. We deserve to be punished for our sin. Imagine boys and girls you go and break a window at school. And the teacher says you've broken a window. You're in lots and lots of trouble. You're going to spend every lunchtime for the next month in my classroom doing extra work. That is your punishment. You're not allowed to go and play in the playground. You have to stay in the classroom and do extra work with your teacher. That's your punishment. Well God has punishment Whenever we break his law, whenever we sin, we deserve to be punished. And God will punish sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ, in being the Lamb of God, he has taken the punishment that we deserve upon himself. And at the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ died in the sinner's place. He took their punishment upon himself. So how does he have the power to save us? Well, 1 John 1 verse 9, we read it earlier. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So in his death, Jesus has the power to forgive sin. So that you and I can stand before God as if we'd never sinned at all. Because God cannot punish us if he's already punished the Lord Jesus Christ for our sin. John said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, does that mean that Jesus took, has taken away everybody's sin and that everybody will get to heaven? No, of course not. That's not what it means. The Bible tells us very clearly that in order for us to be in heaven, we have to repent of our sins, say sorry, and believe the gospel. But whenever it speaks of the world here, it's speaking about every nation, about every tribe of people, every different language group. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't just come to save the Jewish people or those who lived in Israel. He came to save them. Whether they live in Canada, whether they live in Argentina, whether they live in, in Greenland or Iceland or Russia or Australia or India or China or South Africa. It doesn't matter where. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to forgive sinners from every country and from every tribe. He has the power. 
to take away sin. But fourthly and finally here this morning, we've thought of the picture of the Lamb, the preeminence of the Lamb, the power of the Lamb. I want us to think in closing here of the priority of the world. John said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. What is our priority? How are we to respond to this? John uses that word behold. That word means see. Fix your eyes upon this. Stop what you're doing. Think and pay attention. Behold. And dear friends, it's not enough today that you and I know of a saviour. It's not enough that we know that Jesus Christ is the saviour and the only saviour. We must know him as our saviour. There's many religious people who'll sit in churches today and they'll hear that Jesus Christ is the Savior and they'll nod and say, that's right, he is a Savior. But dear friends, can I ask, is he your Savior? It's one thing to know he's a Savior. Is he your personal Savior? Have you been to him, repented of your sins and believed the gospel? John says, behold, fix your eyes upon him. The true believer is one who doesn't just think about him once a week or on special occasions. The true believer is one who beholds him every single day. He is their chief love. He is the one that their heart beats for. They say like the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ. And whenever we think of all that Christ has done for us, how he took every single sin of ours, upon his own body on the cross. How could we not want to live for him? How could we not give everything for him? The world today seeks salvation in a multitude of places. Organized religion, good works, self-righteousness, and even shallow professions of evangelical faith. But the true Christian is one who beholds him, not just with our eyes, not just with the eye of faith, but surrenders completely to him. We have cameras nowadays, and I don't know about your phone, but my phone has this one uh, picture setting where you can focus on the person and blur out the image in the background. That's what the Christian is to do. They focus upon Christ. And everything else becomes so insignificant, blurred in the background. Not that we don't make preparations for our life and take care of our family of course we do but the christian's primary focus is the savior there's many aspects about christ and his kingdom many people in the world are taken up with different aspects some are taken up with future events times to come and uh, there's many aspects of his kingdom his power and his glory that are all fascinating and enlightening but the truth is, dear friend, we'll never appreciate a single aspect of Christ and his kingdom until we first behold him as the Lamb of God, slain in our place. We must come by faith, repenting of sin, believing upon him, surrendering to him, and trusting him. Let us pray.